If you live during the first century in Rome uh, and you use the words Lord, Savior, Son of God, you could be talking about Jesus, but you could also be talking about Caesar. Uh, what's interesting about Caesar and the Caesars that have existed in time is early on, after they died, uh, divine titles would be given to some of these guys who ruled. Um, but because of how wicked and how broken and how messed up our hearts are, these Caesars were like, hey, why wait to worship me after I die? Worship me while I'm alive. Right? I mean, that's, that's kind of how we are. And so the reality was, in Rome, whether or not you liked it, confessing Caesar as Lord, bowing down, paying taxes, uh, whether or not you liked it was the picture. Now, now, for this to be the scene that the, the New Testament men and women who would begin to announce this Messiah who died and rose again, I mean, their phrase, their, the, the language they used was, Jesus is Lord, and God raised him from the dead. That was their confession. Now, if you know anything about Roman culture, you know that they're cool with a lot of different deities, a, lot, a pantheon of, of this kind of religious thought, and this, and this, and this, and this, and it was acceptable as long as Caesar was ultimate. See, where the problem begins is that the Christ followers of the day not only said that Jesus is Lord, but they said Jesus is Lord over Caesar. See, Christ followers understood that God put authority in places for reasons. They knew that Caesar, even though he was crushing them or, put, or persecuting them or they were under persecution, that God had appointed people to rule in places, but they also pushed back, not by violent revolt or weapons or anything like that, but understanding Caesar's rightful place in their lives and that Jesus was Lord even over Caesar. Now, it's interesting because it's, it's, it's documented that one of the late first century Caesars uh, Domitian would actually sign his documents, God. Now let's just be honest. When we're signing our checks, we're tempted to put God, aren't we? Because that's the, that's the sinful nature, right? That's it. We're in charge. We're in control. We call the shots. So we might as well sign our checks, God. If we're honest, we understand the temptation to say, I'm first, I am supreme, and I am ultimate. And so as Christ followers, they were able to push back in a culture that demanded they bow down to these other things, these certain things. They weren't violent. They weren't revolting. They were all, to all ultimately saying, we understand the authority that's been put over us, but there is no authority over Jesus. They would use phrases like, Jesus has all authority, not Caesar. They would say that there's a name under heaven by which all men can be saved, and it's not Caesar, it's Jesus. And they would say there's a name that every knee is going to bow to, every tongue is going to confess, and it's not Caesar, it's Jesus. So today, why would we talk about Caesar? Why would we have a conversation about Caesar knowing that we're not under that type of reign? Why talk about Caesar and how he ruled when it doesn't look that way today? Well, Caesar may not be in charge today, but the same powers and principalities that drove Caesar to be that I'm everything are alive and well today. 
And the enemy desires that you and I would bind ourselves or allow these things that we look to to rule our hearts. He wants those things to be ultimate in our lives because ultimately they will lead to our destruction. Now in the next several weeks, we're going to talk about success and power and and leisure and money and sex and all of these things. But the reality is those things in and of themselves are not bad. They were in fact gifts given to us by God. But do you know what the enemy does to the good gifts that God gives? He twists them. And he twists them in our own lives so they actually become the thing we live for rather than allowing Jesus to be Lord. And so you can see the danger here in allowing these Caesars of our day who are demanding that we bow down to them why it's important for a Christ follower to consider the pushback. And how do we push back? How are we a church that lives in this world, but is not of it? As Jesus prayed, he said, look, don't take them out of the world. They need to be here. We need that. We're going to watch these people reflect the glory of God as the body of Christ. I don't want you to get rid of them. I want people to see God's glory through these people who would collectively just say Jesus is Lord. This is why we would talk about it today. The enemy likes to take the things that God has given us, abuse them, and make them the idols of our lives. And unfortunately, because of our bend, our our nature is bent towards selfishness. We love it. We're bent towards the selfish things. We're bent towards running after these things that we believe will give us everything we want. This is how we walk even in the church. The church is a place where we can say we're doing the Jesus religious thing, but we know in our hearts what's really Lord. And the greatest way to go to battle, the greatest way to go to war against the things that desire to have us in this life is a proper understanding of the gospel. And when I say the gospel, I mean the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, nothing more, nothing less. And all that that marks across history from creation to the fall to his pursuit to restoration to redemption and to ultimately God's final plan of having his people for himself. This goes to war against the Caesars of the day. Not only are we doing this for each other and our hearts have to, have, we have to look and examine our hearts But Paul says something goes on when we look at the cross. In Colossians chapter 2, this is what happens. You were dead. And I love that. You're not kind of dead, but you're really dead. You're just 100% dead. We're not limping along. We're not wounded. We're not kind of broken and busted. Paul says you were dead. Because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ. I know a lot of Christ followers who say they're Christ followers, but man, they're like, I'm dead with Jesus. I'm dead. I died. Gave up everything, so I'm dead. To Jesus, it's over. I used to do all this stuff. It was awesome, but now I'm dead. That's not the picture we see here. Paul says that you were actually dead before him. So maybe you need to re-examine what you think brings you to life. And Jesus brought us to life. Listen to his words as he continues. He canceled the record of charges against us. And that charge list is pretty simple. It's pretty extensive, but it's pretty simple. And the charges against us are outright rebellion. 
It's no longer, God, I don't want, I, it's not, God, I just, I don't want to be near you. It's, I want to be you. That's the charge of our heart. That's our sinful nature. That was the fall. That was Lucifer in, in heaven saying, you know what? I'm not content being near you. I want to be you. God was like, no. And as he fell, he caused his humans to go, hey, you want to be like God? Same thing. Now, Adam and Eve, yeah, I want to be the one who calls the shots. I want to. And God's like, no, you can't. But thankfully, he did not stop pursuing us. And Genesis to Revelation is the account of God going, not even your rebellion is going to keep you from me. It's going to have to go about my way and my pursuit. But Jesus cancels the record of charges against us, and he took it away by nailing it to the cross. Listen to verse 15, and I love this picture. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. This is one of my favorite pictures in all of Scripture because it reminds me of that scene in The Wizard of Oz when they make this long journey. They get in to see the all-powerful Oz, and Toto pulls this little curtain back, and you see this little wimpy man sitting behind a curtain who has no power. This is what Jesus did by his death and victory on the cross. He reveals... The insufficiency of everything you and I are going to attempt to build our lives on. Everything we're going to look to find our identity in. He reveals the ineffectiveness of all those things. So if you're, drive, if you're driven by power, by success, by leisure, by sex, by money, Jesus' death on the cross reveals to us they will not be. We hope they will. In fact, they're powerless. They're idols. And they have no power of their own. But not only does his life, death, and resurrection reveal the ineffectiveness of the idols of our day, but his life, death, and resurrection reveals the full effectiveness of the message of the gospel. The full restoration of having relationship with God made possible by faith in what Christ has done on the cross. John the Baptist had to help his disciples adjust to this Jesus over all picture. You know, it's amazing to me how hard John worked at saying, I'm not the dude. Like, John said it over and over. I'm not the guy. I'm announcing the guy, but I'm not the guy. I'm not him. In fact, John awkwardly announced, Behold, the Son of God, who, the, the Lamb of God, who comes to take away the sins of the world. And everybody's like, what's, what's he doing? When Jesus came to be baptized by him, John was like, No, 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 no. I need to be baptized by you. you need, don't, uh. Jesus says, No, we need to do everything in accordance to the Father's will. John the Baptist was very good at saying, I'm not him. But yet his followers still needed a reminder of why it's good that Jesus increase and John decrease. So let's read in John 3. Then Jesus and his disciples left Jerusalem and went into the Judean countryside. Jesus spent some time with them there baptizing people. At this time, John the Baptist was baptizing at Anon near Salem because there was plenty of water there. People kept coming to him for baptism. This was before John was thrown into prison. A debate broke out between John's disciples and a certain Jew over ceremonial cleansing. So John's disciples came to him and said, Rabbi, the man you met on the other side of the Jordan River, the one you identified as the Messiah, is also baptizing people. 
and everybody's going to him instead of coming to us. They probably said it just that way. John replied, No one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. You yourselves know how plainly I told you, I am not the Messiah. I am only here to prepare the way for him. It is the bridegroom who marries the bride, and the best man is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, I am filled with joy at his success. He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. He has come from above and is greater than anyone else. We are of the earth, and we speak of earthly things, but he has come from heaven and is greater than anyone else. He testifies about what he has seen and heard. But how few believe what he tells them. Anyone who accepts his testimony can affirm that God is true. For, the, for he is sent by God. He speaks God's words. For God gives him the Spirit without limit. The Father loves his Son and has put everything into his hands. And anyone who believes in God's Son has eternal life. Anyone who doesn't obey the Son will never experience eternal life but remains under God's angry judgment. See, in this, in this text, John isn't talking about who should be more popular, have more likes, have more friends, because Jesus will never be more popular. He is not going to be popular. You and I need to understand that Jesus isn't asking to be popular in our lives. But what John is saying is Jesus will always be preeminent. And you and I, we forget that. You and I, we're not fans of that. You and I get angry at the thought that Jesus is preeminent. That is our sinful nature. We don't want anyone to surpass all things in our lives. We want to be self-made men and women. And I love how John just helps us remember the simplicity of remembering and having an accurate view of who Jesus is. If you have an inaccurate view of Jesus, formed some other place other than from the scriptures, you will not have the power to battle, battle to do war against the idols of the world. You will not have the power to, to, to defeat these Caesars that hold on and grip us. If your view of Jesus is a hippie teacher who came and just said a couple of things, that's not enough. If your view of Jesus is this guy who just comes and hangs out and does some stuff, it's not enough. But if we allow the scriptures to form our view of who Jesus is, he has given us everything we need to push back on the Caesars of the day. You and I, we live in a culture in a day that declares it's all about me. Narcissism everywhere, egotism everywhere, the perfect selfie concept. Everything is tailored to the individual's need. I kid you not, I was in Home Depot or Lowe's, one of the two, and I picked up one of those car battery jumpers that's like the size of an iPod. I was like, this is incredible. Like, it can start my car. This thing is ridiculously small. And I was like, that's cool. And I put it back. I kid you not, the night I get home, I'm jumping on the internet. One of the websites I go to in that advertisement corner has one of those. I don't know how that happened. I did not search for it on the internets. Somebody's watching me. And it kind of freaks me out a bit. 
But you now know because of Web 2.0, everything is about the individual. Everything is tailored to our experience. You search something on Amazon, it shows up in your Facebook feed. Facebook, thanks for creeping me out, man. Thanks for selling my information. I love that. But the reality is, you and I, we live in a culture that's made it very easy to believe that everything truly is about us. Treat yourself and stop loving. Once a year, Don and I spend a day treating ourselves. What do we treat ourselves to? Clothes. Treat yourself. Fragrances. Treat yourself. Massages. Treat yourself. Mimosas. Treat yourself. Fine leather goods. Treat yourself. It's the best day of the year. The best day of the year. I really want this dress, and I like this crystal beetle, but it's expensive, and there's no use for it. Don Eagle, treat yourself. Velvet slippies, cashmere socks, velvet pants, cashmere turban. I'm a cashmere velvet candy cane. Treat yourself. This is insane. <laughs> Did you buy anything for yourself today? Yeah, I got this pack of socks. Plain white socks? That's yeah. not a treat. Don, get me away from well, him. Maybe this is our version of Treat Yourself Day, and he needs to do his version. What are you talking about? Why, if you could blow big money on one thing, not sock money, what would it be? best day of the year uh, if we are not careful and this is the warning the best day of the year becomes a way of life if we are not careful the best day of the year becomes something we desire every moment of our life and we build our lives on treating ourselves and what's amazing to me about this is one of the things I did not have to teach my children is how to be selfish. <laughs> I wish I had to teach them to be selfish, but you and I both know it's one of the few things they're going to pick up from you. Because <laughs> if you think you're not selfish, you started as a child, you were just as selfish. But see, here's what happens. We go to school, and then it becomes all about us in school. And then we think, man, when I get out of school, I won't be selfish. I'll be single, and I'll be able to not be selfish. Whatever, selfish you becomes single selfish you. And then when selfish single you says, well, when I get married, I won't be selfish, because I'll learn to share everything. Baloney, single selfish you becomes married selfish you. And then when you think, well, when we, when we start having kids, then we'll really learn to be selfless. No, you won't. You'll learn that you're more selfish than you ever thought possible when you have children in your house. And then when you think, well, when we get everybody out, then we'll begin to serve and see and be selfless and everything. And when we retire and we're empty nest, no, you won't. You'll still be selfish. You see, this is the, this is the amazing thing about the scriptures. It tells us the truth about who we are and what we want and treat yourself is not just the best day of the year. It's our natural position to treat ourselves. And what's amazing about it to me and the danger and the warning that I feel in my heart and that I sense in my own self is that this treat yourself can become our attitude towards the church. We can actually wiggle it into our religious experience too. Our culture has bought into the attraction of me first. And we're in that culture, so it works its way into the church. And this is how we live amongst each other. Everyone being out for their blessing. I kid you not, if I see someone else say, to get your blessing, 
I don't even know what that means when people say it anymore. But we live in a society and in a church culture that is about their blessing. And in fact, we just say, you know what? Let's add God to our plans because, you know, he did the cool thing of creating us and all. Let's just tip our hat to him. We've made the Bible serve us and our wants and our needs by making it say what we want it to. We've removed the portions that we disagree with. We've made our church experience about what we want and what we like. Now, granted, there are questions, fundamental questions you need to ask about being a part of a church. And if there are things that, you're, that are not lining up and you're like, well, this isn't right, I need to walk away, those are those moments But the reality is, we don't even ask those questions. We just go, what am I getting out of it? What do I like? What do I want? And those fuel us as the church. And you can see why this would be a problem as Christ followers, right? Because we make it about us. We can even make salvation about us. Did you know that? 1 John 4 says this, We love each other because He loved us first. Do you realize that there are some of us that walk with the mentality that God loves me because I first loved him. Do you know we can do that? We can go, hey God, you're lucky to have me. Right? You're lucky I'm on your side, so throw me a bone. That's what we do. We can even make salvation about us. Can you see as Christ followers why we can't live here? If there are things in our hearts and our lives as those who declare Jesus is Lord, if we say those things but other things sit on the throne, then Jesus isn't Lord. And how do we battle against that? Even in knowing that the disciples are still upset that they aren't the only baptizers in town, John has to explain a right view of who Jesus is. Firstly, he says that God is the one who hands anything to us that we have. There's a mentality in the United States in particular of, I'm a self-made man. I'm a self-made woman. Let me ask you something. Did you pick to be born where you were? Did you pick your genetic makeup? Did you pick your parents? These three things have a huge tell on the rest of our lives. And yet you're self-made? Not so. It's not possible. You see, the, the power of this statement is that John's going, you know what, if any success that I have of my own, any announcing that I get to do, I just get to have a part in this story that's amazing to me. This is a gift from God. God gave it to me. It's not my own doing. It's not my own working. I didn't work hard enough to get this, but God handed it to me. Secondly, John reminds these guys of Jesus' greatness, and I love this because simply he uses that wedding picture, and he says that I'm just like, I'm a best man in a wedding. I'm not the groom, and so I get excited that my best friend is getting married, and I get to just cheer him on as he's, as he's clapping. And what's amazing to me about this picture is as, I, as a guy who shoots wedding videos, like I, I, I'll try and get this perfect shot of the bride and the groom lined up, and there's always this one guy who's like, I'm like, get out of the way. It's not your day. Get. Every shot, I kid you not, I'm trying to set something up. He's like. And John's saying, don't be that guy. In fact, you'll never have your day if you keep being that guy. We won't even talk about the bridesmaids. 
We don't have time to cover all the bridesmaids who want it to be about them, do we? We don't actually have that much time. But John keeps an accurate view of Jesus in focus and doesn't want his followers, his disciples, to be upset that Jesus is growing in his influence. He starts off with just saying, hey, do you guys know where Jesus is from? Like he comes from above. He comes from heaven. And if this is true, then he's coming. He's stepping out of a throne and stepping into the world. And then he says that he didn't just come from a a place we've never been, but he's actually saying things we've never heard. He's speaking and doing things that, with his words that we've never experienced. And not only is he saying God's words, but he is God's word. Like, and then he just builds on that. And he says, he, not only is the words, but the resources. The Father has put everything into Jesus' hand. You know, and John, I'm sure, could probably be like, guys, you remember when we prayed and fasted and we prayed and fasted and we prayed and fasted because we just needed a little bit of water? <laughs> Jesus has it all instantaneously. Then he says that God gave Jesus the Spirit without limit. You know, in the Old Testament, when the Holy Spirit would, would inspire and cause prophets to speak, it was like this sporadic moment of filling and then filling and then filling. But Jesus, without limit. And so it only makes sense in this line that John would say, Jesus must get greater and greater, and I must become less and less. See, John had an accurate understanding of who Jesus was, and see, for us, we don't necessarily want that statement, naturally, but also, we may kind of go, you know what, Jesus isn't so great, because we don't know him, we don't know him. We don't know who he is, we don't know what he's done And so if you're in this room searching and seeking and kind of going, I just wanted to see what this Jesus church thing is about, I want you to understand that as Christ followers, we have been really good in the church at proclaiming things that are not the good news. We've gotten about a subject or an issue or a thing or a sin, and we've stood up really loud and made it clear what we're against, but nobody knows the good news. Nobody knows what Jesus has done. Nobody knows the story of Genesis to Revelation and the redemptive story that God has written. And we get to step in and be a part of that through his invitation to believe that Jesus is enough. Nobody knows that. But this is the message we're called to herald, we're called to announce, is that in my sin, while I was still selfish, Christ died for me. This is good news And so when John says in verse 36, And anyone who believes in God's Son has eternal life. Anyone who doesn't obey the Son will never experience eternal life, but remains under God's angry judgment. It makes sense that he would finish this section in this way. Jesus has just met with Nicodemus, who's like, Man, this eternal life thing, man, it's crazy. I don't don't get it. And Jesus is like, You're not going to see the kingdom unless you're born again. Well, what do I do? I crawl back into my mom's womb? How does this work, Jesus? This is a strange conversation. And it leads us in this journey of that for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. For God sent his son into the world not to judge the world but to save it. 
That's the good news that we're invited to listen to. Jesus came announcing a kingdom and to repent. So when you see that word obey, you don't need to freak out because it truly is to obey Jesus when he says, you need to repent, the kingdom's coming, the kingdom is here, the kingdom is within you, the kingdom is present. It's, I mean, he just talks about this kingdom and the access to it is not based on my works or lack thereof. That's why Jesus divides the world into two groups, and it's not the good and the bad. It's not the righteous and the unrighteous. It's the proud and the humble. Those who would say, I'm not God, and I believe you are. And so if what you say about me and what you say about you is true, then I want to accept that and I want to receive that. Or, when the Lord does wrap up our history as we know it, you can take your chances on your works. You can. You can take your chances. You can risk your works to Jesus' finished work and hold up your works next to Jesus' work and you know what's going to happen? It's going to fail every time. So when Jesus says that anyone who believes in the Son has eternal life but doesn't obey the Son, he remains under God's judgment. It's not changing the story. It's the same thing. It's to say, Jesus, I take you at your word. Because I'm not God, and you are. And this is why Jesus does this. Because we are, ten- we are tempted to center things on ourselves, on our way of life, and our own understanding. And having a right understanding of this good news, the cross, battles this desire to remain Lord of our own lives. Not only does an accurate view of the gospel cause us to do battle against these things, But did you know that that gospel set aside a people for himself? This good news set aside a good news people. Jesus died for the bride of, Jesus died for his bride, a people set apart. Jesus didn't die just so that individual believers could pop up and have their personal private relationships out in the woods with him. And and, and religion is private. Jesus is private. He actually died for a people that would exist together working towards making it known that God is most glorious. Do you know how being a part of a gospel-centered, biblical community of faith goes to war against the idol of self? It's because in those communities, we're not asking the question of, what can I get out of this? Or how can I get this? Or I'm not getting anything out of this. It becomes, how can I be a blessing? I wish we'd ask the right question for once. And we don't ask the question, how can I be a blessing to earn something from God? We actually ask the question because he has poured out everything we need, according to scripture, in Christ Jesus on the cross. So for me to go, well, I don't have anything, is to not have a full understanding of the gospel. But to know that he's put in our hands everything that we need to live a life of faith in this body, It allows us to be able to say, how do I become a blessing wherever I am? Not just individually, but corporately as the body of Christ. As we close this morning, I want to show you two pictures. There is the traditional image of saying, this is how we have to put God first. This is what I grew up with. I, I grew up hearing God, Jesus first. And then maybe for you, maybe it's family, church, work, friends. Maybe you've got this order of things lined up. Maybe you're Jesus, then me, you know, because me, 
sports, school, church, whatever. Maybe you've got Jesus, wife, kids, work, fun. But see, what happens is the farther down we go on this list, the less reach Jesus has to it. And we do this, whether it's on purpose or by accident, I don't know, but we make these lists. And so when we begin to compartmentalize what Jesus is preeminent over, we've got this list, and we go, the farther down the list, it's less important to him. So we begin to say things like, well, my job, you know, I got to do things that he probably wouldn't be honored by to get ahead, so I'd rather keep Jesus out of it. Well, you know, my sexuality, my sex life, my this, that, or the other, my, my idea of this, that, it doesn't seem that important to Jesus, so I'll just come up with my own. And so we begin to compartmentalize. What about relationships? Well, my relationships are mine. Jesus doesn't care about any of that stuff, so my relationships are mine, and Jesus is more of a private individual thing, so he doesn't need access to that. But if I could show you what preeminence looks like. There is no place in the life of a Christ follower that Jesus' lordship does not reach. But Jesus, I have questions on, on, on life and marriage and, and sex and job and money. Do you think he cares? I think he does. I just don't think we want to know the answer. Because the Caesar of self, he don't want to compete for what Jesus might have to say. I understand. I get hesitant asking questions because I already know because the Holy Spirit that dwells in us is going to go, no, I want you to have spirit, life and not death. And so he brings to mind the things that I need to hand over we just don't like the answer sometimes. But the beauty of the right view of the gospel in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is when we understand we do have Caesars in our life, we do have lords that are cruel masters, we don't run from God or run from Jesus because of that. Jesus actually says, run to me. Run towards me. And it's in that running towards him that we see the effectiveness of the cross and the ineffectiveness of our idols. See, Caesar ascended to a throne. Jesus gave up his throne. Caesar demanded to be served. Jesus came to serve. Caesar desired subjects. Jesus desired friends. Caesar's burden was heavy, and Jesus' yoke is light. Caesar shed the blood of others. Jesus shed his own blood. Caesar died and stayed dead. Jesus died and rose again. Jesus is Lord. You can see why my life, the church's life, the world, the solar system, the universe revolve around him. This morning, you may be kind of going, I, I think I live with a me, rest of the world mentality. The way to go to battle against that this year in 2016 is understand who Jesus is according to his words. If you're running to outside sources to figure out who Jesus is, you got to stop. And you just got to go, Lord, 
your word is inspired, and you want to meet with us every time we open these pages. Instruct my heart. He will. And as you run to him, you will see your Caesars, your idols, seeming less attractive because you see the full power of the gospel and what Christ has accomplished. So this morning, um, as we do most every week, we're going to have some gel eaters and some elders standing over there ready to receive you just to pray for you. If you're like, man, I just need somebody to just pray for me. You, don't even, you may not even have to divulge any of what you need prayer for, but they're just ready to pray for you, encourage you, remind you of the gospel. And I'll be over here, and you know, I typically just say, you know, hey, if you're exploring the faith, if you're like, I got questions, I'm not going to be able to answer them all there, but I will break bread or drink coffee with you. If you want me to pay, it'll be drink coffee because I'm cheap. But the invitation to the conversation remains that if all this is true about Jesus, then there is the power to see those idols of self and all the others that we'll speak of in the coming weeks, the ineffectiveness of them because of the gospel. Jesus, I ask that in these moments that we would remember that it is to you that we run, not away from you, but to you. Lord, and if we're in this room and every single one of these things is something we struggle with, an idol in our own lives, Lord, your kindness to us displayed on the cross is the fuel to see those desires less and less and to see you more and more. And so, Lord, even now as we speak, I pray that you would go to war against the enemy and his plan to bind people up and say they can't approach you. Would you bind the enemy in these moments? And that would we know that our hearts were made to be freed by you. And for you to be Lord, because you are good. It's in your name we pray all these things. 